Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week we read Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, and chapter 4, verses 10 through 17. All stories about the beginning of the relationship between God and Moses. We are struck that it is a full-throated and raw cry that draws God's attention back to God's own covenant of people. We're humbled to witness the sharing of God's actual name and how it both has particularity and intimacy that the title God does not, and how it itself is as broad in its meaning as any word we can imagine. I will be what I will be, or I am what I am, How does Moses, and how do we as mere humans, have a relationship with something as big as God, as big as the verb to be? We think it helps to have company. Thanks for being here with us. Hello, Bobby. Hey, Amy. How are you this week? I am good. I'm good. I had to think about that a little bit, but I'm good. Yeah, me too. Me too. Right before we hit record, I was telling Bobby I feel a little out of practice at at some of these conversations, which is weird because we haven't had that long of a break. But I think that I have the, what's it called? Like the twisties? Oh, you were like Simone Biles? I think I'm like Simone Biles. You just up in your head a little bit? Um, Although that's not really I think I'm just generally like Simone Biles. Yeah. In the maximum number of ways. It is interesting. (laughs) <laughs> it is interesting how you can be like at the top of your game uh, as a Bible Worm podcast host and <laughs> or as a, you know, the best Olympian gymnast of all time. Yeah. And mm-hmm. still like can get in your head about, you know, what you're doing. Yeah. yeah and there are just moments that like your head disconnects from your body and yeah, you're like, absolutely. I can't, I can't do it. So um, the beautiful thing about Bible Worm and the twisties is like the the implications are real, <laughs> real small. Oh, yeah, small. the stakes you know, are a lot lower. Like if you're doing a double yeah. twisting your chinko or whatever and you mess that up, like there are real consequences. You could die. Yeah. yeah we're probably not going to I think Bible worm, the consequences are small. <laughs> <laughs> and the consequences are actually suffered by you, dear listener. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I will no. endeavor not to... Not to completely lose track of what I'm doing. I'm here. Yeah. I'm ready. You got it. I'm ready. You got it. You got it. Yeah. We have a lot of big texts today. It is we are, true. Yeah. We last week we were in the book of Genesis, mm-hmm. reading about Jacob, and mm-hmm. we've skipped a bit. Now our reading today is Exodus chapter two, verses twenty-three to twenty-five, chapter three, verses one to fifteen, and chapter four, verses ten to seventeen. Yeah. Which is all this like introductory Moses and God become friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll have to think about that a little more, but yes. Yeah. Co- <laughs> they colleagues. become something. They become yes. colleagues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of them under duress. Uh, <laughs> so 
but a, a lot has happened in Genesis. I don't know that we need to summarize all yeah. of it, but is there anything you think we need to take with us in order to understand where we're picking up? Yeah, I mean, there is a lot that happens in there. And I think most of it is probably familiar at some level to people, you know, even mm-hmm, if you're not mm-hmm. a theologian or a biblical scholar, if you've seen like the Prince of Egypt or whatever, like you kind of know what's up. So yeah, uh, so Jacob's son, uh, Joseph, uh, in the, at the end of Genesis, ends up in Egypt through the machinations of his 11, 10 brothers, uh, which we talked about on the podcast last year. He mm-hmm. rises to prominence in Egypt, and initially there's a really great relationship between Joseph and the sons of Jacob and the Pharaoh uh, and in the context of a famine, which Egypt saves the Israelites from. She gives them shelter mm-hmm. in the famine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then right at the beginning of Exodus, we get the notice that a uh, the Pharaoh died and a Pharaoh came to power who didn't know Joseph. And then everything changes. And so we've got this, at the beginning of this text, we've got the Israelites who have now grown and expanded. They've been fruitful and multiplied. And the Pharaoh has enslaved them as a labor force, creating uh, storage cities for all the excess grain. And and because the Pharaoh is afraid of them, they're just their number and whether or not they're loyal. And so in the beginning of this text, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, laboring for the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh is pushing them harder and harder and harder. And so that's where our text picks up. Anything else that you think is important for our preparation for this text today? Well, we Moses has been born. Oh, yeah. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, that guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. We need to know about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so Moses is born to an Israelite woman who recognizes that she cannot keep this baby safe, puts him in the basket. We've all acted this out in various children's programs. Yeah. And Moses has had the encounter where he sees uh, someone beating up an Israelite and kills him. Yeah. And then Moses has to go into hiding because he recognizes that people know him as the guy who killed someone. Yeah. No, that's obviously, that's really important. And this kind of identity of Moses as an Israelite mm-hmm. who then is raised in the home of the Egyptian pharaoh, or at least the pharaoh's daughter. Yeah. So he's kind of got this- uh, A dual passport. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And and then has been sort of exiled in a sense from both communities. He's He's yeah. fled away from the Egyptians- because he killed an Egyptian. He's had to flee from the Israelites because the Israelites are afraid he's going to get them in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so when this text picks up, he's actually in Midian, which is kind of on the Sinai Peninsula in sort of a, he's not in, he's he's got dual passports, but he's not in either country to which right. his passport belongs. He's in, in yet a third space. Yeah. Yeah. Let's pick up. All right, let's do it. So I'm reading from the NJPS and I'm starting in chapter two, verse 23. A long time after that, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites were groaning under the bondage and cried out, and their cry for help from the bondage rose up to God. God heard their moaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. Yeah. So just in terms of like contextual link, why why does this start with the king of Egypt died? Like, what is the... It just seems like a weird note to start on. It is kind of a weird note to start on. And I I was sort of paying attention to that as you were reading it. And I guess I knew you were going to ask me about it and I didn't have a great answer. (laughs) Surprise! Because this is not the Pharaoh who knew Joseph, right? That Pharaoh has already died. That Pharaoh's already died. Yeah, we're a couple Pharaohs down the line. And so this is yet another one. And so I was just wondering maybe if the significance of that is that 
the shift in political leadership is always a risk for people who are vulnerable mm. in a particular context. Even though the previous pharaoh was already terrible, there's an anxiety about a shift to yet another pharaoh. And this pharaoh is going to turn out to be even worse in the biblical telling in terms of how mm-hmm. he puts the Israelites to, to labor. Mm-hmm. So I was just thinking about that maybe as the I like that a lot. have yeah. implications. Yeah. yeah, they do. I mean, for the Israelites and the other, another possibility to layer on top of that is that if the other king knew of Moses as a, as a threat, uh, as a dangerous guy, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But I think you're right. They're in this transitional time. So I don't know. There's, there's fear and maybe there's space for change and yeah. maybe the change will be bad and maybe it'll be good. Yeah. Okay. So I want, I want to hear from you about this crying out that the sure, Israelites yeah. do because you are a person who has thought and written and taught a lot about lament, about the idea of yeah. crying out to God. Do you see this? Is that how you see this? Do you see this as, as lamenting? In some way. Yeah, I mean, I do see it as lamenting in some way. And I also see it as kind of an inchoate lament. Like, this is not Mm. a thoughtful, let me compose a lament psalm. This Mm -hmm. is just a groan, right? It's it's just the honest, like, guttural expression of suffering. And you described it as um, calling out to God. And the text is actually a little reticent about that. That Like the directionality of the groan. It's -hmm. just that they groan and God hears it. But I don't view this as them crying out to God, right? Like, God, save us. I just view this as them going like, ah. And then God says, oh, I better get engaged here. And so this is kind of this interesting thing to think about. Like, what does it mean to cry out? Like, when you cry out, are you sort of crying out to God, even if you don't mean to be? What gets God engaged? Like, why does God respond Mm -hmm. to a Mm non-directional groan? There's all kinds of interesting ideas that are that are in there. What do you think about that? I I love all of what you're saying. And I think, I mean, I think that's that's right. I read the other day that there's the noun that's used, that's translated in my text as cry for help, their cry for help mm. is also used in the book of Job in reference to like the last groan of a dying person. Mm. Like it's really they are they are nearing the end of their rope and it's just this yeah like guttural expression of of pain that god hears and responds to but but yeah i i see it as you do i don't necessarily see that they they have in mind that they're asking some deity for help just that they're in pain yeah yeah that um that word that you're talking about shava is like it literally could me just be translated like a scream right it, yeah. it's it's much more visceral than Mm -hmm. lament Mm -hmm. sounds to me. Yeah. Yeah. And then my last, the last question I have for you on this section is one of my famous impossible questions, but (laughs) when it says that God looked upon the Israelites, what do you think God saw? Yeah. That I guess my question is like, was it that God saw the suffering of the Israelites and that motivated God to action or was there something else about what God saw? How do you how do you think about the whole seeing of the Israelites? Yeah, I mean, there's that looking, and then in the previous part of that verse, God remembered. So it's yeah. God heard, God remembered, God looked, God took notice. Yeah, that's an interesting progression of verbs. And you know, the the question that I had written down to ask you was, what does it mean God remembered? Like, did had yeah. God forgotten? Yeah, and I think those two questions are related. I don't think it's that God forgot 
exactly. But there is a sense in the biblical text, correct me on this if you think I'm wrong, mm-hmm. that God sometimes, I mean, I don't even know how you would describe it. Like God looks away, like God's attention is occupied by other things. God gets yeah. a little distracted. Yeah. And so there is a role throughout the Hebrew Bible. You notice this, especially in the Psalms, where the psalmist will say, God, look at me. Like, what, <laughs> what are you doing? You know, like, pay yeah. attention and like, get it, get motivated. I see this notice along those lines. God. For whatever reason, and I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how to speculate about what those reasons are. God has not been engaged. I mean, the Israelites have been, according to the later chronology, they've been in in slavery now for four hundred and thirty years or something, right? Yeah, yeah. So, it's, so God has not been paying attention to them in a way that was liberative for quite some time. But yeah. this groan, this scream from the like from the gut, God pays attention. Yeah. And notices and says, oh, this is the people that I covenanted with. Mm-hmm. I better get engaged. Right. I don't know exactly what to do with that. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think there's some tension too, because this already in Genesis, God said there was going to be this terrible period of time that your ancestors are going to be in bondage. Yeah. So, so then it just becomes a question, I guess, of how do you know when it's time to, when that phase is over? <laughs> And I'm thinking back now to how you first spoke about the king of Egypt dying as this almost like cosmic shift, like things mm. have shifted. Yeah, no, theologically, it's, that's, that's, that's tough, but that seems to be what the biblical text is saying yeah. for sure, that God has other hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> I think about this, you know, Christians uh, have a, a, a prayer where we, we say, thy will be done mm-hmm, on earth as mm-hmm. it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, Jesus teaches us this prayer. And so like, there's like, thy will be done on earth as in heaven means like, let the justice of God be enacted on the earth as it is in the kingdom of heaven. Like, it's a pretty profound prayer. But Christians use it in my experience often to say like, it's, it's like a hedge. I really need this, but, mm-hmm. but you do whatever mm-hmm. you're going to do. Like thy mm-hmm. will be done, not my will, but thy will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we hesitate about telling God that we're in pain. And to me, this text is a little bit of an antidote to that. There is, this is not polite in any kind of a way. This is just people crying out mm-hmm. and it gets God motivated. And so to me, that suggests at some level that God needs us to be honest about the pain that we experience mm-hmm. and that God will respond to that. And God's not up there like, why are you asking me to do something like this isn't what I want to do, right? God gets in God gets engaged by the honest expression of suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no demand attached to it here because as as you were saying, it's not really directional, but it's really full, full throated and yeah. honest. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else we want to note about these introductory verses? I'm just curious how what you make of the like so we we go from the groan to remembering the covenant to looking and taking notice. And so I don't quite know what the question is there exactly, but do you have any sense of what the role of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like it's not simply God saw people suffering and God responded. Yeah. Yeah. There's the covenant is sort of inserted into the middle. Do you have thoughts about the significance of that? I mean, in my head, it's this very, you know, like, oh yeah, I said I would do that. Like I've already committed to this thing. It's not like God almost doesn't have to make a decision in the moment about should I respond to this or not? It was more just, this is a, it's a done deal. It's just, I haven't done it yet. And so now it's time to do it. 
Which again, I don't know if that's very theologically satisfying that that he's responding out of a, a promise made in the past and not only out of the suffering happening in the moment. But once it mentions a covenant, it makes it feel to me sort of like a, a done deal. Like this yeah. is automatic. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, another way of saying that I think is God is uh, keeps fidelity with promises that God has made in the past. Mm-hmm. So there is sort of a like, well, God's just fulfilling an obligation here. But on the other hand, there's also like, God's fulfilling an obligation here. Yeah. Yep. And so if God has said that God will do something, like even if it appears in the moment that God is not going to do it, like God is ultimately faithful to those promises. Yeah. Agreed. (laughs) Should we see what happens next? Let's do. Okay. Picking up in chapter three, verse one. Now Moses, tending to the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, drove the flock into the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire out of a bush. He gazed, and there was a bush all aflame, yet the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this marvelous sight. Why doesn't the bush burn up? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He answered, Here I am. And he said, Do not come closer. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. I am, he said, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. I have a really good idea for anyone who runs a religious school. It's a STEM project. Everyone, STEM projects are very fashionable now. Yeah. On fleek. Is that, do people still say that? I don't think they say that anymore. I think I just made myself unfashionable. Yeah, I think that was like And you should set something on fire in the courtyard and see how long it takes for you to be able to tell that it's being consumed. Yeah. Have you tried this? No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we're totally going to do it in my religious school this year. No, I mean, I think one of the, I don't know, more profound thoughts that I've read, it is not my own thought. Related to this text is that question of the miracle that Moses looked at the bush long enough to realize it wasn't being consumed. Yeah. So anyway, I think that translates really No, I remember really well you talking Moses. about that previously. Yeah. I, can you just remind, so God's sort of strategy here is not to just shout at Moses, but to set something on fire and wait until Moses notices. And I, <laughs> I recall you sort of- That sounds so funny when you say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of recall you kind of, pulling some really interesting thoughts out of that. Can you can you press a little farther with that? Can I still pull them out? I don't know. I mean, uh, the thought is I mean, I guess just the fact that there's that there's a bush on fire in the wilderness is notable. Yeah. <laughs> in and of itself. But that Moses says like I need to stop and look at this because the bush isn't burning up. If you're just walking past a bush yeah. that's on fire, you're not going to see that it's not burning up. Like it it takes a while for a bush to burn up. Yeah. So I so I mean the the more the underlying theological or spiritual point of this line of questioning is you have to pay pretty close attention to your environment to be able to see the miracles that may be. Yeah happening around you and this is like a pretty you know this is something on fire like you know but even with something on fire what really catches moses's attention took him a little while to see so he's got this sense of like 
curiosity or wonder or openness to unusual things happening. And and he's, I don't know, he's not just heads down doing his work, you know, flocking the sheep. Is flocking a verb? Probably. Probably not, but. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know for sure. Herding the sheep, maybe? Oh, that sounds better. But if herd is a noun and a verb. It's true. Flock can totally be a noun I think it probably could be a verb. I'm going for flocking. It's sort of slightly dangerous territory if you say flocking the sheep too quickly. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm mm, saying? mm, mm Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that on iTunes. I'm not sure either. I think you better stop right there. <laughs> Anywho. Yeah. I, and the way you asked the question was, how long does it take to notice that something is being consumed? But I think the yeah. opposite question, which is sort of where you've really been thinking, is how long does it, would it take you to notice something is not being consumed? Yeah. Because yeah. You, you would just kind of assume if you saw a bush on fire that it was being consumed. Like, you know what I mean? Right. And it actually wouldn't take that long, I think. But when you're when you're – to notice that it's actually not happening, that requires some particular interest. I think that's exactly right. I, I'm, I was, I've been curious in reading this text whether, like, whether God would have spoken to Moses anyway. Yeah. Or whether there's something about Moses' particular response that God says, okay, I see something here. Mm-hmm. And I, don't, I guess the text doesn't really settle that for us. It doesn't, but I had that question also reading it. Is it, yeah, did God, like, seek out? Moses for this, or did God just hang out in a bush? Lighting fires. Waiting for, yeah, like lighting fires. Yeah. Setting things on fire in the wilderness until someone stops to look, and it was Moses who finally stopped. Yeah. I mean, I laugh, but I love that idea, actually, that God could be creating miraculous signs in front of other people, too, and they just are not paying attention. And so that commends to us the what you were saying before about being open to the miraculous in the, in the midst of the mundane. Yeah. Do you make anything of the fact that it is, it is, it doesn't actually say that the Lord is in the bush. An angel of the Lord yeah. appears as a blazing fire, which we've seen before. Uh, we've seen the angel of the Lord, you know, show up usually in human form yeah. in the book of Genesis. What do you do? Does that have any particular resonance for you? Like an angel of the Lord and fire and, I don't know. I'm thinking a little bit of like Isaiah. Yeah. I mean, certainly fires and angels seem to go together in the Hebrew Bible. You know, the seraphim, they're, they're actually, the word is fiery ones. This is not mm-hmm. that word. This is just malach, which is like mm-hmm. a, a messenger of God, maybe more, maybe more plainly. It's interesting that in verse two, the, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. But in verse four, the Lord saw that Moses turned aside. God called to him out of the bush. So these are the angel and God are being are very closely yes. related to yes. each other. And I think this is true throughout certainly throughout Genesis. I think throughout the Pentateuch that mm-hmm. I mean I don't know if that like it's almost like the, the the malach, the messenger of God is like a local instantiation of like God. Yep. Not some separate being. Mhm. Is that kind of how you think about it or I mean it is, but I feel like I'm coming I'm coming to it from the direction of Jewish mysticism, which clearly is not what the writer of this text had in mind. But these, you know, the idea that God has sort of different, different aspects of God's self and different sort of emanations. And one of them that in mysticism we call the Shekhinah is the one that is sort of God's presence with us on earth. So this seems like it would be that, but it's not, it's not a separate 
thing from from God. It's just it's an aspect of God. I don't know. Mysticism is so weird and so great, but so it is. weird. All of those things, yeah. Some yeah. manifestation, weird and great. And I will, uh, you know, you're talking to a Christian who, you know, like a core doctrine is the doctrine of the Trinity, which is that God yeah. is manifest in one substance and multiple persons. And like, what exactly yeah. does that mean? It's, it's fairly mystical. But those ideas, which I never really thought of as being related, are actually kind of related. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. A, a, an aspect of the divine being present here with Moses. There's a line at the end of this section where God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Yeah. I have a couple questions about that. Mm. One of them is, I guess I would have expected it to be the God of your fathers. And then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, Uh. you know, (laughs) e.g., this is what I mean by your fathers. But it's not. It's your father. Do you think I'm overreading that? I don't know if you're overreading that, but I don't know what to do with it if you're not overreading it. <laughs> <laughs> That's also a good question. So, so the way that you're reading it is like the God of your father. Like, isn't Moses' father like Amram or somebody like that? Yeah, Amram and Jochebed. He sounds like a um. Oh, what are those like bendy guys? Oh, come <laughs> <What>? on. <laughs> It starts with the T Transformers. Ugh. It sounds like a Transformer. <laughs> Amram. I do, I do not know. Can you turn him into there. a truck? Yeah. There's a, there's a Midrash, a rabbinic story that when God first speaks from the bush, God speaks, God's afraid he's going to scare Moses. Ah. And so he calls his name using his father's voice. So Moses oh, will that's, I like that. pay yeah. attention. And then eventually he says, like, I'm not actually your father. I'm the God of your father. That's interesting. And, yeah. you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I like that, I like even, even putting that sort of story aside, the sort of immediacy of starting with, I'm, I'm the God of this guy that you know. I mean, yeah. sort of. Moses wasn't raised by his father, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll put that aside. I don't know. I like, I like the immediacy. No, I love that. Yeah, I really love that interpretation. That, so the when you say my, your father and then you say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's both there's a nearness to it. Like this is your family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also there's that big picture of like mm-hmm. the the big three, right, in, in the past. And so either one of those by itself maybe has less kind of sense of connection than than both the like original folk and also the ones closest to you. I, I love that interpretation. Yeah. The other another thing that I was interested in, in this section of the text is this idea that where Moses is standing is holy ground. Yeah. We're on the holy mountain, right? Sinai or Horeb, mm-hmm. which is in Midian, not in the land of Israel. And it's not a place that presumably Moses has thought of as holy ground. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of surprises him a little bit, I think, that we're yeah. on the holy ground. And so God yeah. has to say like, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. And then he's like, oh my goodness. And he, you know, then he behaves like he's on holy ground. Do you have any thoughts about the significance of, I mean, it's both that holy ground outside of the land and also holy ground that Moses didn't know was holy. Do you have thoughts mm-hmm. about where to go with that? I mean, it just ties so much in my mind to this story we read last time yeah. of, of, Jacob, of Jacob encountering God and saying like, God is in this place and I didn't know yeah. it. Yeah. You know, as far as Moses knows, he's just out in the wilderness and and there's a thorn bush of all things on fire. Like there's yeah. nothing happening that would 
that sort of evokes that kind of grandeur. Yeah. I love it when God shows up in the wilderness in these random places. And I, you're right, certainly it is there at Horeb, but at this time, Horeb's just Horeb, like nothing's... Right, as far as anybody knows, yeah. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, as far as anybody knows, like nothing, this is the first, the first thing that happens there. I love that. And, you know, the last week's text was in what then became Bethel, right? So yes. it, it was in the land, then it became a holy place. And then Sinai, outside the land, also becomes a holy place. And so you've got this, some sort of sense of God works in the land, God works out of the land, God mm-hmm. shows up in places that you don't expect. And so mm-hmm. there's a sense, A, that God is sort of with you no matter where you are, or could be anyway, and B, that God is not confined to any kind of particular place or structure or yep, whatever yep, yep. whatever it is. Yeah. I also wanted to note, uh, since you didn't do it, that uh, Moses' response is Hineni, which you have raised for us a couple <laughs> of times. I, and I love that. Yeah. You pointed that out, I think, three weeks ago. And then here it is again in another text. Yep, that's true. I've been trying to control myself with the so I don't <laughs> yeah. drive you all crazy with them. But but it's important. Yep, here it is again. And I think that what you were saying a couple of weeks ago about it doesn't really mean like like I'm over here. <laughs> it yeah. means you know ready, like let's do this thing or what, whatever yeah. it is. I'm ready to yeah. respond to whatever I, I you am. Per, I am compelled by whatever you know, but a relationship. I mean, it is. It's very interesting here because presumably God doesn't know. I mean, presumably Moses doesn't know yeah. God yet, but yeah. to feel that level of connection immediately is pretty miraculous. Yeah. He does, re- he does say that in response to his name being mm-hmm. said twice. And so there's kind of this mm-hmm. interesting, and this whole text, is, as we'll see, there's this interest in names and who knows whose name and, and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But Moses responds to the utterance of his name. Um, so even if I don't know you, you know me. It's kind of interesting. Hi everyone, it's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. If you find yourself listening to this episode thinking, man, I really wish I knew all of this stuff last week, have we got a deal for you. Maybe you're a pastor who wants to work a week ahead on your sermon. Or maybe you're a Bible nerd who wants to show off your Bible knowledge at the water cooler before everyone else has a chance to listen to the episode. Whatever the case, if you'd like to get early access to our episodes, you can join our Patreon at the Early Worm level or higher. You'll get access to every episode a week before it's available to the general public. You'll also get a truly amazing Bible Worm sticker and the satisfaction of supporting a good cause. Oh, and you'll get ad-free episodes so you won't have to keep listening to messages like this one. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. As always, thanks for listening to Bible Worm. And now back to this week's episode. All right, then we're going to pick up again in verse 7. And the Lord continued, I have marked well the plight of my people in Egypt and have heeded their outcry because of their taskmasters. Yes, I am mindful of their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the region of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. Moreover, I have seen how the Egyptians oppress them. Come, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh, and you shall free my people, the Israelites, from Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and free the Israelites from Egypt? And he said, I will be with you. That shall be your sign that it was I who sent you. And when you have freed the people from Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. 
I have this voice in the back of my head, which is you saying, worst sign ever. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Please tell me what this sign is. What is the sign? The sign is when all this is said and done and you come back here, you will know that I can do this thing. That is the sign. (laughs) Yeah. That I would, that is not a good sign. Mm -hmm. God's still working on the signs. (laughs) The signs get a little more clear as Exodus moves on. That one's not so clear. It is true. Yeah. No, I love that. Hey, trust me. I can do this thing. How do I know I can trust you? Well, once I've done this thing, you'll know that I can do this thing. (laughs) Exactly. That never, that never works. I will say though, uh, whenever I read this text, I hear you in the back of my head going, worst sign ever. But reading the text this time, having just read the Genesis 28 story with you last time, Mm. what God actually says here is exactly what Jacob ended up kind of twisting God's arm into the last time, right? God said, I'm going to do all this stuff for you. And Jacob said, if you do, then you'll be my God. And so now God's just saying, fine, like, look, the way that you'll know, I don't know. Like, I don't know if there's anything there. Yeah, God's like, maybe this is what the human's like. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Oh, I love that connection. I had not thought of that, but you're right. This is pretty much exactly what Jacob says he wants from God. He doesn't say it's a sign, but yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah. Bring me back here safely and and I'll worship you. Yeah. I love that. I love their, um, the unfolding relationship, the evolving relationship between the humans and the divine. And yes, for sure. Text that really is going both ways. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Yeah, it It is. Absolutely. Another thing I love is, so that the word for Egypt is Mitzrayim, and it comes from, uh, it, it comes from a, a root word that means like a narrow, a narrow place, hmm. which I think is literally describing like the shape of Egypt, right? Isn't Egypt kind of narrow? It's very narrow and then opens out in the delta. Yeah. So I don't quite know where that, I don't, I don't know, I don't know yeah, where so, that name comes so from. So maybe that's not where the word comes from. I don't know. But the way that, that fact, the fact that it comes from the word, the word for a narrow place, lives in the the life of the Jewish community as this idea of like constriction, the, the constriction that the Israelites were experiencing, and the move towards spaciousness, where spaciousness is not just physical spaciousness, but you know the the ability to really connect and to let go of the anxieties that prevent us from connecting to each other or connecting to the divine or you know, feeling enough security to be courageous or explore or wonder or sort of all of those things. So I love here that there's this explicit, I will move them out from Egypt into a spacious land. Yeah. Oh, I love that. It's really nice. Yeah. We've talked already um, an, uh, earlier about this sort of God is the God who responds to cries and mm-hmm. acts to liberate people. I'm curious what you think like in the first instance, this is about God's covenant with the Jewish people. And so God responds when the, when the Jews are being oppressed, when the Israelites are being oppressed. This bit of this text has also been important in liberation theologies in the mm-hmm. Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the way back to Africans enslaved in the U.S. in the 18th yeah. and 19th century and Latin Americans writing liberation theologies in the 1970s and forward to, to say— God is a God who responds on behalf of the oppressed, period. And I'm just curious. I, this is a big question, and I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I'm already, I can already see where you're going, and I'm scared. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, how, do you have any thoughts about how we both res- – or I mean, maybe – yeah. I'm going to give you my sort of like take on what we're trying to do, and then you can say that's not what we're actually trying to do. Is, 
to honor both the specificity of this promise to the people of the covenant and also uh, to think about God's general character as a liberative God. Do you have have thoughts about that? I think it's tricky. I mean, I absolutely think that that we can do both. I guess what I've seen in the world more is is kind of ditching the particular (laughs) and moving only to like, this teaches us something about God's general character, that God is a liberative God. Mm -hmm. And I think it does teach us that. And I think there's something in the, in the particularities of the relationship as it unfolds between God and the particular people in these stories that makes it a little bit richer. Like even that detail that you just pulled in from Jacob's encounter with God sort of immediately juxtaposed to Moses's encounter with God. If you zoom out too much, you start losing, you start losing those details. Yeah. I don't feel like I have a great answer to this question, Bobby. You, do you? <laughs> no, no, no. But I really, I, I thought that actually was a really great answer because what I heard you saying is there is a general character of God that is suggested here, but it's grounded in the specifics. Mm-hmm. And so if you start by saying God frees all the people and you forget the piece about, and this originary covenant is with the Israelites and their descendants, then you lose something that is crucially important, not mm-hmm. just about like the way God is who works in relationship, but also about the significance of that relationship with the Israelites and, w- and with the Jewish people. And I, I think there's a temptation among Christians to sort of skip that piece and just say, look, God's a liberative God. So, mm-hmm. so yes, how do we know? Well, because God liberates the Israelites from Egypt and continues in faithful relationship. Like that seems mm-hmm. important from a, from a Christian perspective. And when, when you go back to the very original covenant with Abraham, as, as we've talked about a couple of times, you know, we've said Abraham is blessed in order to be a blessing to all the nations. So there's no real contradiction there to say God is the God who acts for the liberation of Israel when Israel is oppressed. And also God acts on behalf of other oppressed peoples. There's not really a contradiction there, but you have to go through the narrow promise to get mm-hmm. to the, the big mm-hmm. promise. Yes. And, and slash, or you lose something if you don't. Yeah. 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 You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's right. Okay. Picking up then in verse 13, Moses said to God, when I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, ahia asher ahia. He continued, thus shall you say to the Israelites, Ahiah sent me to you. And God said further to Moses, thus shall you speak to the Israelites. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This shall be my name forever. This my appellation for all eternity. Okay, Bobby, (laughs) what is this about God having a name? Can you give us some like, I don't know context for it's just a weird conversation to have in the context of like american religion judaism and christianity that god has a name yeah yeah because you mean just because like we tend to call god like god, god. which is it's not really i mean it is kind of a name but not it's, it's not really it's really generic it's a title it's mm. like yeah like your honor yeah judge mm-hmm. yeah doctor <laughs> uh yeah, I mean, to me, this feels very intimate. 
And we were talking earlier about how God had called Moses by Moses' name and Moses had been responsive. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sense in which the power of a name is to evoke responsiveness, especially in this covenanted idea. So if God says to Moses, 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 and he says, Hineni, then mm-hmm. one would expect that when Moses calls on God's name, God is also going to say, you know, here I am, like ready, what do, you, what do you need? Yeah. So there's real power in the giving of the name. And I, you know, I think this is why that in the uh, second commandment, don't, or the third commandment, don't lift up the name of the Lord your God for nothing, for yeah. insignificant things. I think that's what it is. Like, yeah. if you name God, you're going to get God engaged. And so don't do that about ridiculousness. Don't play. This is not yeah. a game. This mm-hmm. is for real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, there's some real power there. So that having, knowing God's, that's like having God's, you know, business card in your pocket or whatever, like the direct yeah. line. Yeah. So there's power in that name. And also, the name is such an interesting name, right? Oh, man. I Mm -hmm. am or I will be, it could be translated. I know. Do you like how my translation just doesn't translate that? Mm -hmm. What did it say? Ehya, share, ehya. share, ehya. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The NRSV is I am who I am. Mm -hmm. Ehya, of course, as you know, is imperfective uh, Mm -hmm. stance. And so normally one would translate that in other contexts as I will be. Mm Mm-hmm. I think of those two, I am and I will be as like, I am who I am. Mm-hmm. Well, sort of like Popeye. <laughs> uh, yeah. I am who I am. <laughs> like that to me feels very like stable and like I am today who I was yesterday and I will be tomorrow. I will be who I will be sounds a little like, eh, like you can't. I do what I want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know my name, but look, I am, I will be who I will be, man. Yeah. No, that's so. That's yeah. so interesting, juxtaposed with what you were just saying, that knowing the name does have this sense of power about it. Like, God is yeah. somewhat beholden to respond if you call upon the name. And yet, to me, all that all the name really connotes is, like, I exist. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting name. I will say, working with a lot of the name mitzvah students on their Torah portions— the God's name, I mean, we can talk in the abstract about it looking like the verb to be, like yeah. coming from the verb to be. It really, it's very hard if you're reading quickly to differentiate between that. Well, for, for you know, more newer yeah. Hebrew readers, it's hard to differentiate. They confuse them all the time and it really drives home the lesson yeah. that God's name is about being or presence or existence. And, and while the, the name itself I don't know. Anything you might think that a name could somehow be constricting or can, you know, point yeah. too clearly to what exactly something is and is not. Yeah. This name doesn't really do that. No, I love that. And so this this sort of tension between the two things we've said that the name means you can you've got the direct line to God and also the fact that the name is a being verb means you don't really know anything about that God. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. Because the, the problem with having a name for God is then God becomes an object that you can point to and say, like, that's Amy over there, right? Mm-hmm. There, that is Amy, and also there is not Amy, right? Mm-hmm. There are limits and bounds. And I, in some ways, I now I, I feel like I get you or something about you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then if you know God's name, you can manipulate God in this kind of way that you manipulate objects, or at least you could try to. Mm-hmm. And so this sort of reluctance about the, the name having any objective sense I think is important. So God says, you've got my name, but I am mysterious. I am, but you can't 
tell me who I am or you can't tell me what I am or you can't predict what I'm going to do. Like I remain a subject even though you can now call on me. Yeah, I love that. And I think the fact that it's uh, it seems to be more of a verb than a noun also points in that in that general direction. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And even if it was a verb like, you know, a liberate or a verb yeah. like something, you know, then you're like, right. okay, well, that's the, that is the action that is characteristic, characteristic right. of God. The fact that it's a being verb, like that's the thing we know about God. God is, God will be. It's, it's as, about as broad as you can go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. God is a being verb. Mm-hmm. You know, and sort of related to that, I think, this, they repeat again, God of, here it's God of your fathers, not just mm-hmm. your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this line comes into the Jewish liturgy, yeah. the, into our central prayer called the Amidah. And one of the ways, so one of the questions that we ask ourselves is, why, why do we have to list all of those people? Like, why can't we just say the God of your fathers and be done with it? Or the mm. God of Abraham or the God of Jacob? Like, why Why all of it? Yeah. And one of the traditional answers goes back to that idea of God being, like, so big and so unconfined that that God was different in some way to each of mm. those people. And God is different in God's relationship mm. to each of us. And so, yeah. you know, recognizing the way in which God is <laughs> really, really not human. Like is, yeah. is, you know, has so many facets and people sort of attuned to the facet that they need at that time is sort of baked into the, the way that God explains God's self. I love that. And the thing that all three of those have in common is that the, the covenant is given to each of them. And so mm-hmm. there is both the sort of the difference in the way God operates and also this one consistent piece. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other thing I love in this little section of text, and it, it starts actually in the previous section of text a little bit, where Moses, when God says, here's what I want you to do, in verse 11, Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Mm-hmm. And then now he's saying, look, if I come to Israel and I say, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they say, who is he? Then we're like, what am I going to say? Like, it's so interesting to me the way that Moses, and we're going to see it continue, like Moses doesn't think that he is worthy, capable, something of doing this thing to which he's been called. I mean, and it's yes. an enormous thing, right? Like yes. go to yeah. Egypt, the most powerful nation that you know about, and like free my people. That's uh, that's big. Right. But Moses' response is, I don't think I can do it. Like, who am I? Like, who are you? Like, it's so interesting to watch Moses kind of have this sequence of objections. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I'm going back to your introductory comments where you were reminding us that Moses is really sort of this in-between character. Like he is an Israelite, but he wasn't raised with the Israelites and he wasn't born into slavery or he didn't live in slavery. And, you know, I joked about him having sort of a dual passport, but, but in some ways it's, it's exactly the flip side of that. You know, I was, I heard a a panel last night of some, well, it's a great NGO organization that's building relationships between Arab folks and Jewish Israelis all around the Middle East. And and they were talking about their experiences. And one of the guys on the panel was an Arab Israeli. And so he was talking about his experience, you know, inside of Israel. But he was also talking about, you know, out in the Arab world, I'm Israeli. Like, in Israel, I'm Arab. And in the Arab world, I'm Israeli. Like, and so it's not 
it's not totally like you, the dual passport model. It's also sort of like everyone is a little bit suspicious of you. Yeah. And, and I think Moses feels that in some yeah. way. Like, I don't have the trust of the Israelites. Yeah. So why would you send me as, as their leader? I love that. And so you get the sort of dual sense of nobody trusts me, so how am I going to do anything? Like, the Israelites don't trust me. The Egyptians don't trust me. Right. I had I killed somebody and had to flee. Yeah. And then on the other side, you know, if the question is, who am I to do this? You know, I— there's a way in which like Moses is the only one who can do this because Moses has access yeah. in both of those communities. Like yeah. in some way he understands both of those communities, even though he doesn't think either one of those communities trusts him. It's yeah. a fascinating position for him to be in. Yeah. God initially is pretty responsive. So Moses says, who am I? And God says, I'll be with you. And then God says, who are you? I mean, Moses says, who are you? And God says, here's my name. It, get, it goes downhill <laughs> a little bit, a little bit for me. God, get, God, God starts to get a little bit annoyed. Yeah, because in like, in, you know, in three, in between 316 to 4.9, like Moses now says, okay, well, suppose they don't believe me. <laughs> so then God says like, okay, look, here's a staff that turns into a snake. Here's a hand that you can make <laughs> That's it leprous, a good not leprous. You, if you need to, you could turn a little Nile water into blood, like all of these things. And then Moses keeps on making excuses. We're going to see where we pick up. But this sort of like, Moses has a little crisis of confidence here that God is willing to put up with for a minute. And then God finally is going to get (laughs) sort of fed up here. Yes. I love that about Moses, that the great hero of the Pentateuch, you know, like one of the, probably, I mean, the great hero of the Hebrew Bible, he's a little bit trying to weasel his way out of this thing if he can. He he has a distinct crisis of confidence in this moment. (sighs) Yes, he regrets stopping to watch the bush. <laughs> he does. He does. <laughs> you just kept going with the sheep. Yeah. Keep on flocking. <laughs> okay. So we are picking up now in chapter four, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Please, O Lord, I have never been a man of words, either in times past or now, that you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who gives man speech? Who makes him dumb or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with you as you speak and will instruct you what to say. But he said, Please, O Lord, make someone else your agent. The Lord became angry with Moses, and he said, There is your brother Aaron the Levite. He, I know, speaks readily. Even now he is setting out to meet you, and he will be happy to see you. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. I will be with you and with him as you speak and tell both of you what to do. And he shall speak for you to the people. Thus, he shall serve as your spokesman with you playing the role of God to him and take with you this rod with which you shall perform the signs. Your translation has, I will be with you and I will be with him. The Hebrew actually is, I will be with your mouth and I will teach you what to speak. I will be with your mouth. I will be with his mouth, which I think is just such such an interesting expression. Like, I mean, it means exactly what your translation says it means, but the specificity of like, it's not just I'm going to be accompanying you. It's like, I'm going to be controlling this little part of your body. Yeah, it's like a little, like you're going to be like a little remote control Moses. Yeah. Like a (laughs) ventriloquist. Yeah, I'll be with your mouth. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I love that. I think there's this raises a real question for me about like when... When we realize our own weaknesses, yeah. at what point do we just say, like, I can't, 
be the one doing this? Yeah. And at what point do we push through and trust that whoever has put us in this role knew what they were doing? Yeah. Can I tell you about some abuse I suffered at the hand of an 11-year-old? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're, it's her first bat mitzvah lesson, and she's a little nervous, and she had told me that she doesn't like singing. She doesn't like performing. She mm. doesn't like like a lot of the things that I'm you know, sort of ticking off in my head, like, okay, this is going to be hard for her. So I asked her what she did like to do, and she said acrobatics. And I was like, that's great. She's telling me about her acrobatics, all these crazy silk things that she does. I don't know. And so <laughs> – I, this is a true statement. I am not very coordinated. (laughs) And I wanted to tell her that as a way to be like, look, we've all got our stuff we're good at and stuff we're not good at. And I'm not good at what you're good at. Yeah. So I said, yeah, I'm not very coordinated. And she said, I can tell. (laughs) Now, Bobby, we were sitting at a table. Like I had not fallen over. I had not spilled anything. Like she's never even like seen you standing up. This was, well, I mean, we walked (laughs) over to the table together, but nothing weird happened. And then she was like, that is awesome. I can tell from the way you move your hands when you're talking, because it's like, you don't know what to do with them, but you feel like they should move. (laughs) Dang, 11 year old. Yeah. So I was like, okay, now moving right along. Yeah. 11 year olds are so confident. Yeah. And this is a, and then then for some, for some, For some reason, reading Moses repeatedly say, like, I'm really not a man of words. Yeah. Really, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. God should have just said, I can tell. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, yeah, when you were saying that, I was thinking about God's response, which is is not at all that. You know, I mean, it's not all. God's also not just saying, like, no, you're fine. (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. But God is saying, okay, if you think that you are not able to speak, then here's a solution. I will send someone else along. And so yeah. there's this kind of, like God has said, no, no, you'll be fine. And also I'll do this thing for you. I'm not just going to, you know, yeah, tell you that you're right. <laughs> you are a terrible speaker. Indeed, you are terrible. <laughs> I can tell Moses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it says, as, as you said, he, you know, loses patience a little bit. It says the Lord became angry with Moses. But he doesn't really express anger. He goes on to to give Moses what Moses really seems to think he needs, even if God doesn't think he needs it. Yeah, it's so interesting to me on that that issue of God's anger getting kindled. Because up until then, Moses has kind of had like reasons. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know who you are. They don't know who I am. You know, I I don't speak very well. Verse 14 (laughs) is just, just like, send somebody else. You know what I mean? Like Moses has run out of like specific concerns and it's just like, I want to do this. And now is when God is like, <laughs> okay, look, I have had en- I've had enough of this. Yeah, I don't know quite what to make of that, but there's some, there, it seems like there's something in there about God is sort of willing to make accommodations to our own sense of weakness. Yeah. God is not willing to let that be an excuse for Moses to not do the thing at all. It, it's really that like it rings really true to me that, you know, you you come up with all these reasons that may be valid reasons that you're worried about something, but are usually not the totality of it. Like he's just got some underlying feeling that he can't do this yeah. or he doesn't want to do it or yeah. he's not ready to do it. And so once he runs out of like all the logical stuff, God does finally, you know, say, OK, like. I hear you. You need someone else. Even though there's no logical reason that you need someone else. You like psychologically need someone else. Yeah. 
I love that. And, you know, at the end of the day, what Moses needs that he doesn't seem to have is courage. And Mm -hmm. like, this is a scary thing that he's been asked to do. And so he's sort of thought of these technical reasons why he can't do it. But it becomes clear there that at the end of the day, I think Moses just is afraid. Mm -hmm. And so what he gets from Aaron is in some way courage, like having a partner who's going to go with him. Yeah. This gives him the courage he needs to go and do it. I I really love that aspect of this text that, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes we need, sometimes we actually need somebody who can do some things that we can't do. In this text, it seems like we just need community because it's scary to do things by ourselves. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, that's kind of lovely. Also annoying when people need that. So I see where, I see where God's coming from, but, but, but really true. Yeah. You started out a minute ago. The question that I, that I think you raised was, how do you know if you really are not the person for the job? Yeah. And therefore, you were raising legitimate concerns about things that somebody else ought to, would be better than you at doing. And how do you know when you're just making excuses for something that really is yours to do? Yeah. Do you have any yeah, thoughts how do about? You? <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. It's a great question, though. You know, so I am somebody who often will push ahead with things that I have no business doing. And I'm kind of afraid to do things I actually could do, you know? I was actually going to say the opposite about you. I feel like you have such a high, a high bar of like what things ought to be. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't like slow you down or paralyze you the way that it might paralyze some other people, but I'm willing to call things good way before you are. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I don't know, but it is, I really, I don't know. I think I'm going to sit for a while with this idea of like, sometimes you just need community to give you the courage to do the thing that you probably can do. You probably could have done anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that a lot. You want to say anything about this line? He shall serve as a mouth for you and you shall serve as a God for him. I mean, I think that I, you know, I just joked earlier about sort of like remote control Moses and like (laughs) ventriloquist God. I feel like this is like, Fine, you and Aaron can play act the same. You know, like yeah. I could just tell you what to do when you say it, but if you need to play act this with your brother, Hell then yeah. you play God and he'll play Moses in this weird, you know, <laughs> sort of like circular system you're creating yeah. for yourself because like you don't that. have the courage to just do it yourself. Yeah. I don't read too much into the idea that, you know, playing the role of God to him. That that seems like really like theologically big, but I don't read it as that. Yeah, here. no, I like that way of thinking about it. So we were going to do this thing where God was going to tell Moses what to say. And now we're going to do this thing where God tell Moses who tells Aaron. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I like that. I want that to be more theologically profound than that. <laughs> but, I think, I mean, but I think I agree with you that maybe there's not a lot there. It does make me think a little bit about the ways in which you know, we hear throughout the biblical text that the holiness of God is overwhelming and scary, and it just needs to go through some steps before it gets yeah. to people. Yeah. And in a lot of the stories, actually, Aaron doesn't exactly play the role that that it says. I mean, he does in the immediate story with Pharaoh, but he doesn't really stay in that in that yeah. job. But it it does, like, I don't know, it's like there's a... Okay, the word is definitely not neutralization of God's holiness because that sounds 
terrible, but that's the word that came into my head. But like there's some, it has to be processed a little bit to yeah. come out as like a God hot dog. <laughs> no. Okay. I have, I don't have, my words are, are not good. I've, I've neutralized that. God's holiness and made a hot dog, a but like they, a hot dog. sometimes there are just steps. Like you just, there needs to be a little more distance between the, the really powerful origin and yeah. The end point. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and if you think narratively, like Moses literally was out walking around with some sheep and then here he is. I mean, this is a pretty short conversation later and he's yeah. supposed to, like now suddenly he has been given instructions to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let the people go. And, you know, there's a lot to process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely, definitely true. And, you know, in some ways you sort of feel for Moses here. I mean, I, I actually appreciate Moses here because I'm scared to do things kind of a lot. And so I'm like, okay, like, all right, like God can, God can work with that. And I, it's okay for me to raise objections to a, to a degree. I think. Yeah. I appreciate no, I think Moses that's here. right. I think that's right. Bobby, I think it's about that time. I do too. Yeah. Where you lay down some wisdom on us. <laughs> yeah. What is rising? Yeah. What is rising to the top for you from all of this? This text to me is so rich in so many ways. The way that I am getting engaged with it right now is thinking about this God who liberates from systems of oppression. In the case of the biblical text, liberates Israelites from oppression in Egypt. But I think there's a fairly clear step to say this is a God who also liberates people who are oppressed in systems of economic exploitation here and now today. And so in that sense, this text is not so far removed from us that there is a liberation that yet needs to happen. And I'm so struck by this character, Moses. We were, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but Moses is positioned in this really unique way where he, he belongs to the privileged class in this text, mm-hmm. and yet his heart is really with the oppressed people in this text, and nobody trusts him because he's not fully either one of them. And yet Moses is the one, in this text is the only one. I think I would probably want to hedge on that a little bit in our own context to just say, is a necessary one. Like mm-hmm. you need people who can function in both of those worlds in order to help this process of liberation move forward. It's God's liberation, but it's done through Moses speaking truth to power that he is privileged to access. And mm-hmm. he says, this is what you're doing wrong. You need to let, let the people go at great personal risk to himself. And so in that way, I think Moses becomes, in a profound way, kind of a model for what people who are positioned in the world like me might do in a more modest way. We have this kind of task. We have access. We know God is a God of liberation. We know there is oppression. Our job is to speak up in the places we have the power to speak up. The fact that Moses is really nervous about doing that, like, rings very true for me. Like, there is a there is a part of me that would love to just be on a mountaintop with some sheep, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of risk to going back to the places and speaking a word against the places that, that raised you. Yeah. And what I love, one of the things I love in this text is that God is so patient for a while anyway about saying, look, I'm with you. Uh, here's some signs you can do. Here's a companion who can go with you. For Moses, a lack of courage is not something that ultimately has to mean he can't do his job. It's just he needs to work through the process of saying, like, here's all the reasons I don't want to do this. And then he needs a companion. He needs a community. Mm -hmm. He needs someone Mm -hmm. to go with him. 
and a God to go with him, but he needs a companion to go with him to give him strength. So I love that, that maybe that's what we can do for each other, mm-hmm. is we can be sources of courage uh, for, for each other to say the things that need to be said and to go to the places that need to be gone to in order to work for the liberation of, of the people who, who God wants to set free. I love that. I had so many thoughts while you were, while you were talking, and I think that, that I want to just sort of hang my, my concluding thoughts on some of your thoughts. Yeah. Um, because there's so much in there already. One of them is, you know, talking about the the complex background that Moses himself has and how he sort of is connected to these two different worlds. One of the the teachings I've learned about why Moses is told to remove his shoes is not because of something about the ground, but because shoes are a thing of comfort, a thing of privilege, oh. a thing of class. And and Moses oh, is an that. Israelite, and yeah. Moses has been raised with privilege that the, most of the Israelites didn't have. And so in order to go back in this capacity, he's got to give up some of the creature comforts that, that he's had. I love that. So that's one thing I want to hang on your, yeah. hang on your teachings as a little ornament. And then the other thought, you know, I'm, I'm working through a different story in the Torah right now that, that happens right after the golden calf and, and Moses and God have this conversation and, Moses asks to see God's face. Mm. And God says, I can't quite do that for you, but I'll let you see my back and has this whole, you know, I think we've talked about this text together. And so I'm I'm working with some students now who are wrestling with this question of why why does Moses want to see his face? Why can't Moses see his face? And what is the difference between seeing someone's face and seeing their back? Like, why can Mm. Moses see their back? And all of these questions, as we're reading this text now, are tying in some way in my mind to the breadth of God's name, you know, and the way in which seeing someone's back, you know, they're there, (laughs) you can see that they're present with you, but it doesn't, there's something sort of imprecise about it. There's some, you can't pin it down. You can't necessarily pick it out of a crowd. You can't say this is what you look like and this isn't what you look like or yeah. not nearly to the gr- degree that you could if you had seen someone's face. And so yeah. just thinking about the way in which Moses really does want and need this human-like partner wants a partner in the way that we think about partners as humans you know (laughs) something you can see and touch and name and interact with because that's how humans work and that gives us the courage that we need and gives us it the i don't know there's just something different almost energetically about having someone else in there with you and god keeps saying i will go with you i am your partner and it's just it is it's hard to hold on to the, yeah. the bigness of God without trying to translate God into human terms. But I think, I don't know, for some reason, the way that we talked today about God's name being to be, you know, yeah. I, I am, I will be, I exist, I is, I think, a really nice encapsulation of, of what we can and can't do and can and can't say and it is really hard to have a relationship it is <laughs> it's really hard to have a relationship with god without trying to pin something down yeah it's hard to have a relationship with a being verb <laughs> it yeah. is hard it is hard yeah. 
without without trying to trying to make God smaller than God actually is. Yeah. Yeah, no, that last point is really important too. And so, and so in this text, Moses gets Aaron. Mm-hmm. Moses also gets the staff that mm-hmm. represents God in some kind of a way. So he, he has these concrete objects that represent that relationship. Mm-hmm. I love that. I really love that. So in some way, we need each other to communicate God's presence. Yeah, we, we need each other, yes, to communicate God's presence and to enable us to let God be as big as God is. Mm. I love that. Well, Bobby, it's been nice chatting with you. (laughs) It has been. (laughs) It has been. Oh, we got a good one next week, Amy. What is it? Exodus 16, 1 to 18, a story of manna in the wilderness. I love me some manna. (laughs) Me too. I think it tastes like frosted mini wheats. In my mind, it does. I was like, wait, have you had manna? How do you know what it is? No, but I'm pretty sure it tastes like frosted mini wheats. Yeah. I was working on a joke that was, manna, what is it? Because, you know, manna means what is it? What does? Manna. That joke wasn't even even funny to you. It does, yeah. Manna, yeah. What is it? Oh, I gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) That joke wasn't even funny. (laughs) That joke was so far from funny. Bible worm. <laughs> oh, friends. Um, thanks for hanging out with us during this podcast. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs> See you then. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bibleworm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagley. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporters, Joanna Herreter, Sarah Ann Berger, Ann Choi, Jillian Hankamer, Cindy Muse, Charlotte Lehman, LaFleche Limerick United Church in LaFleche, Saskatchewan, and Webster United Church of Christ in Dexter, Michigan. Join us again next week when we'll be discussing Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 18, the story of God providing manna in the desert. Until then, keep on digging.